Hello and welcome to the Amateur Austenite. My name is Frances Duncan. I am an author and the founder of the Jane Austen Society of New Zealand. My co-host is my friend Sean. Good afternoon. Before we start today's chapter, I wanted to make a comment about something that we talked about in the last chapter. We were talking about Fanny and Sean used the word masking to describe some of her behaviour, which then ticked in my head the possibility that she might be on the autism spectrum. I would really like to point out that obviously the autism spectrum didn't exist during this period of time. It's a relatively modern thing. As a diagnosis. As a diagnosis, it is a modern thing. I have seen talks suggesting that Mr. Collins and Mr. Darcy in particular could have been on the autism spectrum. I don't know a lot about it myself. It is a big thing to potentially say about Fanny. It has been suggested to me several times in the past years that I myself am possibly on the autism spectrum and I do identify quite strongly with Fanny. So I don't know. Interesting. But if anyone who is listening, particularly if you're female and know Jane Austen well and are on the autism spectrum and would like to discuss this, that would be fantastic. We would love to have someone come who has more knowledge than we do, even though generally, as the title says, we are amateurs and we just make it up as we go. <laughs> yes, true. We just have opinions. How valid they are is anyone's guess. Opinions like ourselves. I'm not quite sure about that. That's not one. That Everyone has them, but it's not okay to show them. Today we're discussing chapter 38 of Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Chapter 38 spans Fanny and William's travels to Portsmouth and their first evening in Portsmouth. It's exhausting. It is. I was exhausted just listening. It's also a really long chapter. It's 10 pages in my book. And Fanny turns up. They ignore her. They keep telling William that a thrush has gone out of the harbour. Everyone tells him this, <laughs> completely ignoring her. And then her brothers come home and everybody's running around the house and yelling and she cannot cope. And all I could think of was this tiny little parlour and all of these bodies. Where did they sit? Well, they obviously didn't sit. The boys didn't seem to be sitting anywhere. They had to get another chair when the doctor came in. Yes. There wasn't space for him. No. And the difference between this house and Mansfield is really striking. So much so that Fanny thought she was in a hallway rather than a room. Mm. But consider the drawing rooms at Mansfield Park will probably be like two to three times the size of what we would consider like a lounge or living room now. Oh, yes. They didn't have passageways in many of those houses. You just went from room to room and you that were, was all the... Yes, so you'd... Like you'd, museums! You'd have doors at one end of the room and you'd walk along. They didn't have a wall. Because why would you have a wall? Because you wanted the window on the other side. Which is how Fanny escaped from Mr Crawford at one point because she went out another door as Sir Thomas was coming in one. Yes. Whereas here, what she thinks is a base on the way to somewhere else to discover it's a complete dead end. And the walls are thin and everybody's loud and the room that she's sharing with Susan is very small and plain. She soon learned to think with respect of her own little attic at Mansfield Park and that house reckoned too small for anybody's comfort. Even the worst room was... A luxury in comparison. We don't quite know where the house is. I think there's two or three stories. Is it part of a terrace block or is it standalone? We don't know. 
We know it's on one of the back streets. They talk about the rattling of the carriage and you get the idea that it's narrow. And those houses usually were tall, narrow, and you just walk through from front to back. But it's just all the names kept coming through. The slovenly maid and then meeting Susan and Betsy and Mrs. Price. Trollopy, they call her. Trollopy, yes. I wonder if that means something different. Trollop, from my understanding of it, is kind of sleazy or slutty. Not that there's anything wrong with being a slut. You live your best slut life. (laughs) A vulgar or disreputable woman, especially. I think that Fanny's going to find them all vulgar, though. Compared to the people at Mansfield Park. The probably definition that Austin's thinking of here is an untidy woman or a slattern. At one point, Fanny does refer to her mother as a slattern later on, I remember. Because that's quite a shocking thing. The British is an untidy or slovenly or a slattern. I think it's become known as a sexually promiscuous woman more recently and probably more of an American term. The English dictionaries have the slattern first and then the promiscuous, whereas the Americans have the promiscuous first. It's an Mm -hmm. interesting thing with language that usage changes meaning. And meaning can change a lot Mm. over time. Rebecca is the maid who turns up at the door. We hear her yelling and arguing (laughs) and not doing her job. And it says she was never where she ought to be. There's no quiet. No, and even her father shouts, his loud voice preceding him. And then there's these arguments over the silver knife between Betsy and Susan. So these days, a child having a knife is a big health and safety risk. We don't even give them, we have those funny little scissors that children can use. This is a five-year-old with a knife. Presumably, it's something like a letter opener. So, no, it wouldn't be a letter opener. No, it wouldn't be a letter opener? No. So an actual knife. This is a five-year-old no, 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 with an actual knife. Yeah, but it's not necessary. We don't know what sort of knife it is, but it's not likely to be a stabbing knife. It's more likely to be shaped like a butter knife because it's a child's knife. Because in my head, it's a little dagger, and she keeps <laughs> her little dagger on her bed next to her, as she's dying, and then this creepy little five-year-old gets the dagger out of the drawer and is like, look, I've got a dagger. Like she's threatening Fanny with it. Yes. Which is not at all what's happening. No, I don't think so. So at this time, having things that are made of silver, which presumably this is made of silver, were very precious. Even like in Would my have been grand- a silver plate, I expect. Even my grandmother had silver cutlery. They would shine it and that sort of thing. So it would have been something precious, but to us it seems a little weird. Well, to me it seems a little weird. It seems weird to have the insert of Mary, the sister who died, and then say Fanny had been upset when she died, when we hadn't been shown that. But we skipped quite a lot in the early chapters, if you think about it. So Fanny sort of arrived there at 10, And then she's 15, and then she's 18. And obviously Mary died, presumably not that long after she left. Eventually, Mrs Price asks about her sisters, but she does it by asking how she manages her servants, which is kind of hilarious for several reasons. One, that Lady Bertram does not manage her servants at all. 
if anyone does, it's Mrs. Norris, and she's really just interfering rather than managing or being any kind of helpfulness. And it shows that this is all Mrs. Price is thinking about. She's still actually thinking of herself. She's not actually inquiring about her sister. She's very much in her own concerns. And this reminded me of persuasion. When Anne goes to Uppercross, how quickly everybody's attention turns from what's happening at Callanch Hall to what's happening at Uppercross. They do actually ask her questions and do the proper inquiries, which are not really being done here. But there's her realisation that when you change societies, that the topics of conversation change. Change quite dramatically. They don't know each other. Lady Bertram and Mrs Price, they don't really converse or talk to each other. They haven't seen each other for 20 years. But they nor do they actually regularly write. We get no indication that they've actually had regular communication. Even Fanny, she gets letters from William, but she does few and far from her mother. We actually have no indication whether she gets any from her mother at all. That's right. So really what you've got is Mrs Price is asking questions from where she remembers her sister, really, rather than what she knows about her sister now. She'll only know about what her sister is like from any letters she may have received from Fanny. It's a very juvenile, in fact, both of them are quite juvenile. Later on, Fanny says that there are a lot of similarities between her aunt and her mother, and she could see that she was more set for the life like Lady Bertram, whereas Mrs Norris would have managed this life much better. But Fanny's having a really hard time. She is bewildered, broken and in sorrowful contemplation. Sitting in the dark because her selfish father is reading the newspaper with the only candle. In between him and the newspaper. Which also seems a bit like a health and safety hazard. (laughs) They didn't worry about health and safety in those days. She's also sadly pained by his language. He says hello to her when he turns up, but then he seemed very much inclined to forget her again. They're actually quite kind enough in the sense of they hug her, They say hello. It's just they don't know this woman. That's very true. This is a stranger just dropped into your midst who you now have to treat like a family member. Yeah. Their behaviour as a family is so completely different. She needs to fit in. She's one of many. Now, she would have fitted in had she stayed. She was the little mother before she left. And they talk about that with her and one of the boys. And she wanted to remember the infant that he was. But they were too young and they won't really remember. They're boys. They're full of energy. And it's nothing like she'll have been experiencing because Edmund and Tom were so much older. Totally overwhelming for her senses, as she says. She's tired, had a long journey. The tea takes a long time to come. She wants them to love her. This is the very first thing. Would they but love her, she should be satisfied. Though that's early in the chapter, I'm not sure how she feels at the end. At the end, she might be like, I don't care if they love me, I just want to get out of here. I think at the end, she just needs the peace and quiet. They were all delighted to see William, absolutely delighted to see William. As you say, every time somebody came into the room, it's the the thrush has sailed, the thrush has sailed. But she saw him in his uniform. Which she so wanted to. And Austin describes how it actually changes its bearing. But the thing that got me through the beginning of the chapter as they were journeying, they had so much conversation. She was lively. And she's always been like that with William. She's 
a different character with William. There's a real sense of trust on her part and openness and honesty. And William is also, even in here, recognises that she's feeling overwhelmed and is trying to help her. So it's not like he just landed and dropped her and disappeared. I mean, he has no choice. He's got to go. But he's used to living in a house full of lots of noise. He's used to living in a ship where there's even more noise and less space. So for him, it's quite different. The other thing, of course, is his recognition that Fanny does not want to talk about Henry, and so he chooses not to. For all he thinks, Henry's done him a wonderful job, and Mr Crawford has, by bringing him to attention of his admiral uncle. He makes no pressure on Fanny at all. I think she blossoms with people that she trusts in, in safe environments. So with Edmund, with William... And then at the end, at Mansfield, when all the bad people are gone, she gets the chance to blossom and really be herself. And later in in the next chapter, we see she starts to blossom a little bit when she finds herself a role with the family. She always wants to be useful. And that's something that gives her a sense of worth. Her mother complains about having no butcher in the street, which makes me think that it would probably be quite convenient at that time to have a butcher or a baker in the street if you were not doing those things at home. Exactly, and particularly in a town like that, you would, in most instances, wouldn't be doing those things. In Jane Austen's house at Chawton, they had a bakehouse out the back. It was not in a city, it was in the country, so it would have been necessary also Mm. because there wouldn't have been the vendors that there would be in the city. No, that's right. Uh, But it reminded me of a story a friend told me this weekend when they were driving through the desert and they would drive through little towns and there'd be buildings that had like a stick with an animal head, like a pike on it, and it took them a while to realise that they were the butchers when they killed, for example, a goat, they would put the goat head out in front so everyone would know they had fresh kill. It's hard for people to understand what it was like prior to supermarkets. People used to have butchers deliver to their house. We've gone back to that. Yes, that's true, but we used to have the butcher turn up and they'd slice the meat when they were there. We used to get the milk delivered, we used to get the bread delivered, we used to get vegetables delivered... But Fanny and William are really comfortable together. They seem to have a very comfortable journey. Even though it is long, they talk a lot. Anna refers to William's frolic and joke. Even when you try to read his speeches, he's a much more positive person than Fanny. Yes. It's quite funny him telling stories about making money. But a really beautiful bit is that he wants to save some of the money to get a little cottage for he and Fanny to pass all their middle and later life together. So this is obviously their plan, which is lovely that he wants to provide for his sister. He's very obviously very close to Fanny and has remained so all the way through. So that's not a one-sided relationship at all. We don't know, but she was probably his most faithful correspondent. I would say so. For a young child in the Navy, for anybody in the Navy, getting letters from home is a very, very special, special thing. They would have had to have been franked. So Thomas would have franked them, I assume? I presume so. They don't talk about Mr Crawford, we, we covered that bit, but Fanny has been corresponding with Miss Crawford in the three weeks that they've been gone, and it was quite as unpleasant as she had feared. She's forced into reading not only these letters, but words from Mr Crawford. But not only that, 
She has to read them to Edmund. Because it was meant for him to hear. From her perspective, Mary's not really writing to her. She's writing to Edmund She's and writing Fanny's to Edmund just a... and using Fanny. Yeah. She was compelled into a correspondence which bringing her the addresses of the man she did not love and obliging her to administer to the adverse passion of the man she did is cruelly mortifying. But going to Portsmouth is going to be a release because Miss Crawford would have no motive for writing. Because Fanny could no longer read the messages to Edmund. Little does she know. <laughs> you can hear the noise. Oh yeah, it was giving me a headache reading this chapter. Anybody with young children just knows what they're like. And five-year-olds, precocious five-year-olds, always wanting to be the centre of attention. And ineffective mothers. Oh. So you found out some information about the thrush. Yes. So I decided I wanted to have a little look at what a sloop was. What I discovered about the HMS Thrush was she went to sea in 1809. The blockading squadron that she was part of was under Captain William Price Cumbry. So he wasn't actually the captain of this ship, he was the captain of the whole squadron. So the Thrush participated in the blockade of San Domingo, so that was in 1809. Wasn't Captain Wentworth in that one? Captain Wentworth was also in the Caribbean as well. Yeah, so this, the squadron was actually under Captain William Price. And it actually refers to the novel Mansfield Park. And it actually speculates that she may have seen the thrush being fitted out there in 1808 and drawn on her memory. Because she didn't write the book until 1811. We learnt of Austen using familiar names for some of her characters like Wickham. And presumably this is where she had her inspiration from William Price. For anyone who knew about the Navy at the time, reading this book and then going, William Price, mm. and then, oh, his ship's the Thrush! Yes. That would have been great fun, actually. Yes. So it would have been well-known. He was highlighted in the Battle of Trafalgar. And that is our summary of Chapter 38 of Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. My name is Frances Duncan. You can find me at francisduncanwrites.com and on Twitter at Francis underscore Duncan. Thank you for listening and we wish you happy reading. Just popping back in to let you guys know that we have merch now. I haven't actually got merch with my face on it. That seems a little weird to me, but if you really want it, let me know and I'll do that. There's merch of the Jane Austen Society of Aotearoa New Zealand's logo, uh, some Jane Austen merch and some Pride and Prejudice Heavily Pride focused merch too. It's on Redbubble and the link is in the notes. Happy buying!